Welcome to the Talk Marketing Analysis for Life Sciences podcast with Covalent Bonds. I'm your host, Laura Brown, and I am Chief Effectiveness Officer here at Covalent Bonds HQ. In this podcast, we explore marketing and media analysis for life sciences, touching on topics from marketing data to our guests' biggest marketing failures and successes, because it is in learning from others that the magic happens. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our first podcast since the pandemic. I'm so sorry that we've disappeared into the ether, but like a lot of marketers, the Covalent Bonds team has been really busy as a result of the uh, fast transition to a digital world. So we've been super crazy busy over the last uh, 18 months. But it's not just that. We also had to segment and prioritize what we worked on a little bit, not just from um, a business perspective, but to help manage mine and my team's mental health. So we had to prioritize a few things. Anyway, what that means is we're now back with a new and revitalized podcast. And I'm so pleased to bring to you today one of my favorite scientific marketers, someone I've known and respected and worked with for many years. He's VP of Marketing at Metro, Michael Allen. Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much, Laura. I'm excited to be here. Oh, I'm so glad that we're finally able to do this after so many attempts. But uh, a new year. A new year and and man, hopefully some stability coming coming in twenty twenty two. Maybe maybe a real uh, execution monitor change repeat year for for once, right? Rather than just trying to keep the marketing ship afloat. Um, I feel like it's just been a struggle to keep my head above water for the past uh, past two years, and and now that the waters are calming down a little bit, I hope to start steering the ship toward a buoy and um, trying to get us moving in a, in a better, more focused direction than we certainly have been over the last 24 months. Oh, Michael, as always, you get straight to the point as quickly as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing that everybody is feeling the same. This like craziness of, well, obviously the craziness of the pandemic, but being a marketer in this world has just been insane. The speed of change and the speed that we have to, um, you know, keep abreast of everything. So in fact, I usually start these um, podcasts asking you to describe the company, what's your role, but let's just sort of upend it a little bit. Just tell me, how has your role changed since the start of 2020 when all of this craziness happened? Oh man, I felt like uh, before I, I was much more of a of a strategist, and I, I feel more like a firefighter, um, mm-hmm. at least at least in the short term. Right? Uh, there's just been so many changes. There's been so many uncertain situations. You know, part of it is is advising and and working with my team to come up with a with a revised strategy or a revision to the revision of the of the strategy that we thought we would do. And then the other part is writing a lot of, of checks that, that bounce. And I, I don't mean that literally, but, you know, just making some mistakes and, and mm-hmm. letting the team know it's okay. You know, we made a, I'll give you an example. We made a pretty big investment in some virtual trade shows and, and saw very, very limited return this year. And, and, you know, that's okay. We didn't know. We all thought it was a good idea at the time. And, and we thought, you know, um, it was a good investment. But when it turns out not to work so well, I also have to shift gears into into being that kind of patient counselor, cheerleader, getting people motivated and staying, you know, connected to uh, continuing to try and continuing to adjust. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Now, let, let me ask you, did you have a lot more oversight from your senior team at Metro into these decisions on how the budgets were spent and changed um, during the pandemic? Were, were people asking you questions about that investment and why it had failed? Yes, absolutely. I was getting... I was getting more questions and, and it was mostly driven by, by two factors. One was just an innate curiosity, right? I mean, mm-hmm. everyone from the CFO to the COO is really interested in the market dynamic. And I think that can't help but translate into a question about how you're spending your money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second, uh, I guess, curiosity really came from the viewpoint of, how are we going to think about investing during what would be a recovery of live events, a, a sharp uptick in, in what we're seeing for pay-per-click results? Mm-hmm. And um, there were just so many moving pieces uh, that it really, it really became about how do we appropriate the money into the right ratio when it comes time to build a budget because the the comparables just are are almost meaningless Laura I mean you're looking yeah. at even if you look back to 1819 and you try to try to skip over 2021 and maybe do some sort of calculus where you where you try to account for the pandemic uh, it, it doesn't make sense and I mm-hmm. think what we had to figure out was, what is, I hate to say new normal because everyone else is, but what does the next normal look like for, for Metro, for our customers and, and for our marketing? Yeah. So it's really interesting because you mentioned budgeting and how hard it is. How has that changed for you? And what, you know, with the data not being reliable anymore, because we haven't got years and years of history of it. How are you making those decisions for looking forward? I would say we're doing a good mixture of an educated guess as to what we believe the dynamics will be. Mm -hmm. And we're also looking at being able to make adjustments faster. Instead of planning maybe 12 months or 18 months, let's plan six months and let's see how things go. And let's Let's move reevaluation of our full electronic marketing budget from a yearly exercise to a quarterly exercise. Wow. Let's be able to, to be agile and, and to make adjustments and not be willing to make significant adjustments. Um, mm-hmm. I, I made substantial cuts to, to print and substantial cuts to, to trade show this year. Um, just because of the reality. Now, if events come back at a 2x response rate, what they were in 2020, 2021, and we're back to 19 or better performance, there's no reason why we can't move the buckets of the budget around a little bit more to adjust and account for that. And I don't, mm-hmm. I think what, I, what I've spent more time doing is convincing the organization that we need to be patient with how we make these decisions rather than making those decisions. Interesting. We need to be flexible with what the overall number is or however you choose to bucketize the money that you have for, uh, for marketing. But we need to be able to be flexible throughout the year, knowing that things are going to change. Huh. And are people broadly supportive of that? They are. Yeah, I think they are. They're broadly supportive of it. And I think what's really interesting is our executive team has done and and did a lot more, I would say, 12 months ago or 18 months ago, a little bit more of the scenario planning. Like When we mm-hmm. didn't know exactly how bad this was going to be, we didn't know exactly how the market dynamics would shift. 
we broke down four kind of extreme scenarios and walked through those. And we're using some of the ideas that came out of those sessions to make short-term adjustments that we probably should have made anyway, but Mm -hmm. the pandemic gave us permission to think about it differently than we were before. And when you have the pandemic permission to make some of these changes, to approach things more boldly and to have a new perspective, it's only logical that you're going to make some of these big shifts over the long haul. Let's dig into that a bit more. What kind of changes in terms of technology, in terms of skill sets and all that kind of stuff emerged as a result of the pandemic for you to stay agile and be agile in the future? Well, I think the biggest one that we saw right away was just a tremendous increase in the utilization and absorption of online content, Mm -hmm. whether that was a, a white paper or a webinar or whatever activity we were doing. I think people working from home early days had more time or were willing to invest more time in online events and trying to stay connected, connected to the technology, connected to the technique and connected to um, instrument company providers. And, and we, were, we were on the front end of that, I think, and really ratcheted up the number of online events we did and kind of rode that wave of, of success that, that mm-hmm. came from that, right? Because there was a tremendous increase in engagement. We've seen a step function increase in engagement and, wow. and it's not changing in 21 or 22 the utilization and uptake of our content has doubled. And we know that it's more important than ever to make sure that we not only have that content, but we also maintain that customer connection. That to me is key because the content doesn't replace the connection. Mm -hmm. And we need to make sure that we're staying on top of what the market wants to see from us and and producing the reliable and useful content that people need to make their adjustment as they come back to the lab, as they look at a new capital budget, as they look at the changing dynamics of their laboratory and the staffing and all the other elements of that, we have to continue to speak directly to those customers and their need. Two questions that arose out of that. The first one's probably a quicker one, but you talked about it doesn't replace contact with the customer and that's still critically important. How has your role as a marketer changed in that direct dialogue with the customer? Because I've seen lots of salespeople get much more involved in marketing and Mm -hmm. the, the alignment between the two get closer. How has that looked for you? At Metrome, I think, you know, we've always had a focus on trying to get closer to customers, whether that's regional offices or, or how we go about direct selling uh, to our customers, what we, what we do in terms of application support that may be above, above the ordinary in the industry to some extent. I think we've, we've always had a little bit of that connection. The biggest change, I think, is that we have found out that we have to be much more personalized in the message that we deliver and much more narrow in the audience that we deliver it to. Right. Got it. We have to present content to a very narrow and focused audience. And when we do, when we take our, our email list down to a smaller number, we get a much greater return in open rate, click-through rate utilization rate, conversion, whatever you want to call it, however you measure it, when we go smaller and more focused, we get better results. That's created a couple of issues. Number one, we have to have a lot more of those 
industry-based or technology-based type follow-up emails than we've ever yeah. had before. Just sheer number of them to send out. Yeah. So content requirements are up. And mm-hmm. the other thing that's up is we we know that sales cycles at the beginning of the pandemic were protracted and longer than they were, you know, obviously while people were going through a period of, of indecision. Mm-hmm. And it's now turned into kind of both a long and short. So we have almost an equal mixture of people that are sitting on a decision longer, but we also have people that are making decisions faster than they've mm-hmm. made ever in the past. So what that means for us, because there were some long decisions early days, we've extended out our time period of follow-up with customers and seen similar conversion rates at the end of maybe, you know, six emails as opposed to three that we would use to follow up from from a live event or or some other engagement with customers. It, it used to be that we would follow up, you know, a few times. We've really extended that follow-up window with strong success because it's no longer a budgetary cycle uh, period mm-hmm. of inquiry. It's Those rules have changed too. And I think mm-hmm. we want to continue to meet people where they are not only with their individual interest and technology, but we want to continue to meet people where they are in time with respect to their purchase process. And that means staying with them a little bit longer than we have before. So you've mentioned a lot of stats and data there and specifically around the customer journey. What do you use to map that out and monitor it and how it's changing over time? And is that a specific job role of somebody to do that or does your home team do it? Uh, the whole team does it really. Um, I think uh-huh. we're we're all aligned as a team and and how we keep score, um, and and what we track, which makes it easier and more consistent. As a scientist, uh, you know, with a <laughs> with a background in in analytical chemistry, mm-hmm. my initial attempt at all of this was just to track everything. Uh, mm-hmm. And count it. Just count everything. Don't mm-hmm. don't worry about whether you're double counting or or triple counting or or anything else. Just count everything and count consistently. So um, we look at really uh, five major different parts of the sales process in marketing. We start at the very top with what we call impressions, which is literally how many times the name Metro USA or one of our products appears out in the market. How many times do we actually just appear? How many opportunities are there for people to see us? Mm-hmm. From there, we go down to engagement, which is how many people in some way engage with the content that we put out and how many times does that happen? Uh-huh. The next thing we track is a lead, which is just interest in a product coming in the door. A marketing qualified lead has the attributes of a little bit more detail around what product or application they're interested in, maybe a little bit more detail around the time period of the purchase. So we have a little bit better qualification than just a lead, right? So it's marketing uh-huh. qualified in a sense that we know this person is is actually interested in moving into our sales funnel. Uh, in 21, we took the approach of actually letting sales determine what a sales qualified lead is. And it turns out that we're pretty close with our original guesses before yeah. in marketing. The place where we missed most frequently was overestimating the need of our existing customers. 
So if someone was already a customer and they came in as a lead, we would be a little bit more inclined to move them over as a sales qualified lead, move them through the funnel than their actual purchase history indicated. Oh, interesting. And we have uh, we have some data on this, but you can understand where that comes from, right, Laura? We've we've known each other for years. I've got a project mm-hmm. to do. And I call you about it. You can pretty much guess that my interest is pretty high. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason to move that move that through the funnel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to someone that you've never met that could just mm-hmm. be shopping, kicking the tires, or doesn't even really know how much it costs to track attribution marketing. So mm-hmm. I think um, what what we've found out is those rates are a little bit inflated. Um, but by not telling the sales team that this is a lead and letting them determine what moves into that sales funnel, we've had higher conversion rates from lead to sales qualified lead than we have in the past. Oh, interesting. And I love that because it gets the dialogue between sales and marketing so much closer and you're able to respond to the data back from the sales team quicker in that way as well. So I love that shift. Mm -hmm. It it is what it is, right? I mean, is my number of impressions wrong? Am I double counting? Absolutely. Am I counting consistently for the past seven years? Absolutely. We can see through these conversion rates and closely watching these conversion rates how much marketing we need to do, how many times we need to be out there, how many events we need to do to generate a certain number of leads to support the product line growth that we're looking for. It is, it is very systematically mapped back. The part that's always difficult is saying these sales dollars are associated with these sales activities because frequently they don't happen in the same year. Yeah. If you run a webinar and get a lead in November, you know, you can look at where that money came from, but then you're you're looking at money that was spent in 21 versus sales that are generated in 22. And mm-hmm. to some extent we look at that only for the success of the conversion and not necessarily the time. So how yeah. good are webinars at generating revenue? How good are pay-per-click leads at generating uh, revenue? So we don't follow it down to the 12-month window of when we actually need to do activities. We just yeah. look at it as a one of those barometers to say, how are we going to adjust our spend? What's working, not working? And how do we funnel more activities or more money to the activities that are successful? So which tools, actual like analytics tools do you use? And is your CRM and marketing automation system the same? Are they integrated or are they separate? They are. We use Microsoft Dynamics as a CRM, mm-hmm. which has a marketing automation platform inside of it called Click Dimensions, uh-huh. which is really nice because it allows us to connect our customer base into what we do with our marketing. So we can do a lot better with our existing customers and lifecycle marketing than we could do in mm-hmm. the past. Mm-hmm. We used to use HubSpot on the front end as a, as a tool for generating demand and, and mm-hmm. looking at, at how we would do that type of demand generation marketing. We've since made a switch all the way over, all the way over to click dimensions and, and having everything move out of, out of that platform. The results of all of this are, are tabulated every month. The fact that our CRM is directly connected allows us to have a strong association between the revenue and the marketing event that is associated with it. Yeah. Um, although I, I still wouldn't call that attribution per se, but um, it does give us an idea of what the last touch was or perhaps the most meaningful touch was that drove the customer to purchase. And I think you know where we're looking at continuing 
to make investments and continuing to improve is is on that lead nurturing side. Um, how mm-hmm. do we continue to stay close to customers through their purchase journey? The sales mm-hmm. team tells us all the time that you know customers are more informed when they finally come to sales to discuss a purchase. We know that they're shopping a lot on their own and, and, and using some of the same consumer behavior that they use in their personal life, shopping for a mm-hmm. car or, or similar size purchases in, in their personal life. So we have to keep up with some of those same types of consumer behaviors. We have to stay in front of, of those customers with personalization and messages speak directly to them during their buying process. And I think more importantly, the question was on the tool having the tool that we use for sending the marketing messages integrated with the actual CRM, which is tracking the customer's progress through the funnel and even on the front end as a lead, really makes that uh, whole process much easier and fully integrated. Yeah, absolutely. And do your team all have access to all of the data or can they just see the marketing automation side? They can see everything. That's cool. Okay. So let's talk a bit about the process of how you, you, you said you pull that data once a month. How does your team then evaluate it, respond to it, and make sure that your marketing is agile? And do you have tips for our listeners who are also trying to implement this kind of pro- program? Yeah. So the first thing that we do, I guess, um, to kick all of this off is set some goals mm-hmm. and literally say, what do we think we can achieve from this investment? And what is that? Is that more focused on just creating a buzz in the market? Is it really demand generation and a lead play? Is it trying to grab customers from competitive accounts? Or is it trying to grab customers that are near the end of the purchase process or close to the beginning of the purchase process? And all of those questions really help define what you want to do and then what tactics you want to do and how much you invest in those. And mm-hmm. so we define goals. And and this was uh, an interesting exercise in the beginning because it's challenging for scientists and marketers to be wrong. And, uh, <laughs> and sometimes we are. Uh, yep. Sometimes we're really wrong. And so we set a goal and, and we, we look at what we try to achieve and we write it down and we make our investment against that. And then we track our KPIs to it as we, as we get the data in over the period of time for the campaign. And then we go back and look and say, did we get what we expected? Did we get something different than we expected? And why do we think we got that? And then what does it do to future investment? And wow. I like to create a cycle of just kind of asking those questions. You know, did we get the number of leads from competitive customers that we thought we would? Well, no, we missed it because the messaging and the registration spoke more to this group of people than we thought it would. And we generated more top of funnel business, for example, than we would bottom of funnel business or uh, business from new industries or areas where we're trying to grow, vertical markets where we're trying to grow versus established areas of Metro's business. And so I think what we end up seeing is by writing down what we're trying to do, we don't necessarily set ourselves up for disappointment when we don't get there. Mm-hmm. We put some framework around what we did to try to make it more repeatable in the future. Have you had any challenges of getting people on board with this process? Because what you just said there what got right to the heart of it, that we have seen that there have been some fear about people putting in measurement systems because it might highlight that they're not doing so well. So have you experienced that? And mm-hmm. how have you managed that? 
the easiest way to manage it is all of these gaps are improvement opportunities. The question mm-hmm. is, do you know you have them or not? Mm-hmm. So are, are you more comfortable today knowing that this is working or not working or living in ignorance and continuing to invest the same amount of money? Exactly. I love it because it doesn't change. It's still not working, even if you don't know about it. So. Correct. <laughs> Absolutely. Correct. Correct. I mean, if I'm not making enough insulin, I'm becoming a diabetic. It doesn't really yeah. matter whether or not I'm getting my blood sugar checked. Exactly. It, it doesn't change that process, right? So what I think it does, Laura, that's really important for, for the listeners to hear is it allows you to also not only identify things that are different than what you expect or not performing the way you expect, most of those areas of underperformance are actually areas of quick wins and quick changes. Mm-hmm. And what gets people excited about it is they can identify it and say, oh, shoot, I should make this better. They can take one or two steps to try to make it better. And now all of the other metrics downhill from what they're tracking from that metric also improve. Mm-hmm. You don't lower the boat because you fix one leak in the side. You raise the boat. And mm-hmm. I think what people need to understand is does that does that amount of improvement to our marketing come from the ideas that we have and the things that we want to do in terms of goals or does it come from fixing what is wrong with what we're doing today or what is less efficient about what we're doing today and then what is the right combination of both of those proactive mm-hmm. and reactive techniques but most people are afraid of the reactive the measuring and the reactive not understanding that they can quickly change it mm-hmm Exactly. Exactly. Now, let me ask, you mentioned that you're an analytical chemist by background. Are your team all scientists as well, or are they marketers generally? Uh, That's that's kind of funny. I've got a team that's 50-50. So the majority of the entire product team, which is the product managers, product specialists, application scientists, they're all technical background people. They're all Uh PhDs, masters, chemistry degrees, been in the lab, understand science, plugged in that way. All of my marketing communications and and brand team is mostly all professional marketers, with just a few exceptions. They have no formal scientific training or very little formal scientific training, and they're interested in the the art of communication and Mm -hmm. marketing and the translation of what we want customers to think, feel, and do from a very technology-based product manager to a marketing specialist that has no background in chemistry is a fascinating process to watch unfold Mm -hmm. because we Mm -hmm. have to convince that non-technical person that these really important value propositions about our highly sophisticated scientific instrument need to be communicated to the market. Mm-hmm. And as we go back and forth and ask those questions to each other across those groups, we get a lot of interesting responses. And it's very interesting to watch the education process of how do I want that customer to think? How do I want them to respond? What do I want them to feel as a result of getting this message? And then how does that actually play into what value propositions we deliver as an instrument company? I love that. You've, again, you've nailed it, Michael, because it's two different roles. You're not hiring a marketing person for their scientific expertise. You're hiring them for their marketing capabilities and likewise on the other side. So completely agree. Now, what I'm interested in is if you're seeing a difference in how somebody with a scientific background versus someone with a marketing background embraces 
data and the agility that we've been discussing. Are you seeing a difference in those two different groups? The primary difference that that I see is, um, of course, as an overgeneralization, the scientifically biased spreadsheet folks are a little bit more disappointed by underperformance or missed performance. Mm-hmm. The marketers are more interested in the creative solution or creatively understanding how we got there. And I think mm-hmm. those two things have to work together. There has to be the pragmatic, we missed the mark part of the team, and there has to be the creative, this is how we're going to recover, change, or adjust for future campaigns. And yeah. I I like the blend. And that's not to say that these roles are mutually exclusive or that it's even in, has a negative connotation, right? It doesn't mean that because we missed, the product managers are negative about data analytics uh, or the or the campaign overall. It just means that they're approaching that from the, what can we do better? What was the actual score? How did we get here type question, as opposed to the creative types, which generally have already moved beyond the result. Mm-hmm. And are trying to be creative about the next thing. Exactly. And how, how we get the fix in place. And I think the two work together really well. They complement each other. Yeah, exactly. And it, it supports something we've said for a long time, which is our industry is perfectly set up to embrace data-driven marketing because of our scientific <laughs> yep. background, because of <laughs> how we process data, all that kind of stuff. This should be a no-brainer for our industry. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, it's great to hear and see it playing out in companies like Metro. So that's fabulous. There is a long acceptance curve to that, though, right? And I think the other part of our industry is because we're scientists and A to B, sometimes linear thinkers, is that when we put that data measurement in place, we're going to start to see the results very quickly. Or we're going to have models that are so good, they're going to be right out of the gate. Yeah. And that is absolutely not my experience or the experience of my team. The experience is actually more consistent with being a scientist in a sense that we have to continue to change and adjust variables and optimize. We don't know that the hypothesis that we come up with is the right answer the first time we try to solve a scientific problem. Why would we think the same thing about a marketing problem? Mm-hmm. And I think we have to get everybody comfortable with the entire scientific method that you talked about, which is my hypothesis is we will do this. We will go off and do that experiment. And then we will look at how it performs and and make adjustment for the next experiment. There's not a bulletproof business case for every activity just because it has a KPI. Exactly. Um, Exactly. What's really funny is we want a proven program that we know works. And it's like, well, then everybody ends up doing the same and then everyone ends up looking the same. If we follow this approach, everyone will develop what their customer needs and keep optimizing it over and over. And it will be fabulous. I love it. Absolutely. Anyway, Michael, we're running out of time. So I just wanted to ask you, um, We at the end of each um, podcast, I always ask each interviewee to answer a question posed by a previous interviewee. And the last person I spoke to was Kristen Garvey, who was VP of Corporate Communications at Waters. And she asks how you are considering new technology like um, AR and VR in your campaigns. And is there anything that surprised you lately about other new technologies that are available at your disposal for marketing? You know, we've found a lot of interest and still are working on a way of 
of allowing customers to connect with our technology virtually, right? So mm-hmm. we, are, we are doing virtual demos. We're doing a lot more video webinars. Um, we want customers to be able to get comfortable and familiar with our technology in a pretty frictionless process. It doesn't necessarily involve us coming to their lab or to their office, especially mm-hmm. when that was difficult. And, and I think mm-hmm. will be difficult for the foreseeable future. So, yeah, and when it comes to augmented reality, virtual reality, uh, I kind of roll those up for early days. And in the, um, in the instrument industry is more about, you know, a, a nice way of giving customers a really good perspective on the product in a forum or in a venue uh, where they are without actually mm-hmm. having to bring the product to them. And mm-hmm. so we are we are absolutely looking at these types of virtual tools to help our customers get a better understanding of our products, to be more familiar with them, and to eliminate the need to always do a demo for for some of these more straightforward, simplistic applications. Excellent. So if you could ask your peers one question to learn from, what would it be? I'm really curious as to what is the next big change for the scientific industry when it comes to establishing a personal connection with customers. <laughs> a lot of what we do in our industry closely follows the consumer industry, and, and there's usually not a need for this. Mm-hmm. On the consumer side, if you can appeal to someone's emotions, um, you can appeal to their need or their greed or whatever it is, you can you can get their attention and bring them in. Mm-hmm. But as we've talked about throughout their time together, there's a need for a partnership, authenticity, trust relationship in, in our industry, science and technology. How are instrument companies building that? And how will they build it tomorrow? <laughs> oh, that's the golden question, Michael. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to put that to my next. <laughs> and of course, you have to send me all of the answers so I know exactly oh, what they said. But yeah. <laughs> I'll get it to you before it goes live. So you've got a heads up. (laughs) Exactly. Sounds great. (laughs) So Michael, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure talking to you as always. Um, And if you've got anything else to add, feel free. Otherwise, um, thank you so much. Nothing to add other than a thank you. Uh, It's always fun to talk about the work of what we do and the science of what we do as scientific Mm -hmm. marketers. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity and look forward to all those answers that are coming back to that question. Excellent. Thank you so much, Michael. Have a wonderful day. Take care. Thank you, Laura.